So what we want to do is we want to read Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34, and, and we're going to talk about Jesus and idols, Jesus and idolatry. So Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, and because he saw the city was full of idols. So Paul reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know this new teaching that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears, and we, we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and all the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of our own, your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art of imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead." Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus and Aeropagate and a woman named Demarius and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we do confess that we still, even today, live in a world full of idols. Things that we have lifted up, that fill our hearts, that fill our minds, that take our attention and our imagination. So Father, as we look at this passage, may our hearts be moved to 
towards your truth. May your spirit convict us of our sins. And may we have a glimpse of you high and lifted up that would, that would free us from our love for idols into a greater love for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we want to look at Acts chapter 17, and we want to break it down into three parts. First thing we want to do is we want to look at Paul's reaction to the idolatry he saw in Athens. So we want to look at Paul's reaction. The next thing we want to look at is Paul's message that he delivered to the men and women of Athens. And then we want to end with the response of the people. So Paul's reaction, Paul's message, and then the people's response. And I think while we begin, we we really need, I think, to define what we mean by idol and idolatry. Whenever we look at Acts chapter 17, verse 16, it says that Paul came into the city, and the city was full of idols. I don't know about you, but when I think of the word idol, the thing that I most think about is Indiana Jones, um, you know, with the whip and the gun and, and the hat and what every young boy wants to grow up to be, uh, an archaeologist, right? That's what archaeologists do. Um, and, and in the beginning of one of his movies, you have Indiana Jones running through this tunnel, avoiding booby traps, using his wit and his skill, and on this pedestal is a little golden statue. And when we think of idols, that's typically what we think of. We think of, of, of statues of metal, of gold, of silver, of bronze, or wood, or, or stone that is set up as a representation of a God that you worship, that you serve. And that's oftentimes what we think about when we think of idols. But an idol is actually can be anything in our lives that we lift up above God. Tim Keller uh, defines idol and idolatry in a very good way. This is what he says in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He defines an idol as anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God, anything you seek to give what only God can give you. Tim Keller then continues and says this, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I will feel that my life has meaning. Then I will know that I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. I think when we read this definition of what an idol is, we come to a realization that we all have idols in our hearts. And when Paul walked into the city of Athens, what he saw was a myriad of idols. Idols in the traditional sense of altars that were set up, where sacrifices were being made. Idols in the the traditional sense of, of, of statues that people served. But also, he saw idols of of different ideologies. It says, it says early on here in verse 18 how he was talking with some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. Uh, the, the, the Stoic philosophers believed in God, but, but believed that God was a, was, was a God of reason. So they really held reason above 
all other things. And they had this idea of the unity of mankind and how we had this duty to serve one another. So we think, okay, not bad Stoics. And then we, we, we look at the philosophers of the Epicureans. And the Epicureans, I think, even more mark our culture than, than, than the traditional idolatry or the Stoics philosophy. The Epicureans believed and thought it was necessary, or they didn't think it was necessary to seek after God. In fact, they attacked and belittled people who believed in the gods. They believed that when you died, you were gone. That there was no afterlife, there was no judgment. In fact, since they believed this, the Epicureans began to believe and teach that the purpose of life was pleasure, to fulfill yourself, to gain about yourself material things. And this ideology and the ideology of the, of the Stoics and the traditional idols filled Athens. And I think the same type of adult, idols feel, fills our hearts today. Before we move on and talk about Paul's reaction, I think one of the first things we have to do is realize that our hearts are factories that produce idols, that we crank them out, that we will look to anything to give us meaning, to give us value, to give us significance apart from God. It's so easy whenever a church gathers together to talk about idolatry and idols, to look out at our culture and say, look how wicked our culture is. But what God would have us do is before we look out at our culture, he would have us look inward to our own hearts and to our own community and say, what idols dwell here? It's a question that each and every one of us has to ask. What do you go to in your life to find meaning, to find significance, to have value? What fills your heart and your imagination? Because think what that will do will show us what our idols are. And how did Paul react to this idol, this city filled with idols? We see this in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for his missionary team to arrive in Athens, it says that his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. He was provoked. Other versions talk about how, how Paul was, was agitated, how he moved. It was almost this gut reaction where he's like, I have got to do something and I have got to say something. I cannot remain silent. And isn't it interesting what Paul does? He can't remain silent. And so it says he begins to reason with them. He didn't yell at them. He didn't belittle them. He began to reason with them. He began to talk to them about Jesus and the resurrection. I think whenever we are confronted with the idols and the false worship of our age, oftentimes that's not our response. Our response is not, I am so moved, I want to tell you the truth about Jesus. But rather we act out and we speak in anger and frustration. We talk about the good old days and how we long for a bygone era. And I think oftentimes our reaction to the idols of our culture actually reveals the own idols in our own heart as well. If we respond with anger, it might be that our idol is an idealized America. 
that our idol might be this idol of position and respect and that we feel slighted. The other response that I think sometimes we see in Scripture whenever idolatry is expressed, wherever lostness is expressed, is that of Jesus in the Gospels. And the Gospel tells us in Matthew that when Jesus was going from village to village to city to town, that he looked at the people and he was provoked. He was agitated. You know what he said? It says about Jesus, it says he had compassion on them. That was his reaction, not anger, not frustration. That was, that was reserved for people who were religious and who were twisting the word of God. But he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And it's interesting, you know what Jesus calls for? He sees the lostness of the society, of how people were, were like sheep without a shepherd, how they were worshiping their idols, they were mishandling the word of God. And, and what does he say? He says... The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out his workers. And I think that's what we see with Paul, is, is a worker going out into the field trying to reap a harvest. What reaction do we have when we are surrounded with the idols of our age is it hopelessness? Is it anger? Is it frustration? Or is it a heart of compassion and being provoked to share the gospel message? And that leads us to Paul's message. We want to look at two things here. We want to look at what Paul said in his message, but we also want to look at how Paul said it. Both things are important. Uh, as I realize since I've been married and has been a parent, it's not just what you say, but it's also how you say it. And so what we have in, in Luke's book of Acts here is, is a summarized sermon. This is not Paul's entire sermon that he shared on the Oropagus, but was is a summary that Luke gave of his sermon. Remember, this, this is the Apostle Paul who one time preached so Long into the night, a man fell out the window and broke his neck. Um, I'm praying against that today. Um, <clears throat> it's a lost cause with a few of you. No, no, I'm playing. No, not really. Um, but so this is this is a summary. And in fact, this would be a six-point sermon if I were to if I were to break it down and outline. And this these are the six points that Paul talks about, beginning in verse 24. Point one: Paul is saying that there is a Creator God. That the cosmos that we live in is not an accident. It did not happen by happenstance. It was not born out of a God being torn apart. But that creation is from God. It is his creation. Not only did God create God, but his second point would be that God is sovereign over time and that God is sovereign over history. Paul was saying in this sermon that no ruler has sat on the throne, no president has been elected to office, no army has won or lost a battle in which our God was not involved. No line or border was drawn on a map without God's direct involvement. He is saying our creator God is sovereign over all of time and space. And it, 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 kind, of, it kind of makes me think of, of my backyard. Right now my, my backyard is green, 
uh, because I have lots of weeds. I don't know if your yard is like that. Uh, and in my backyard, the weed I have the most that looks really green are, are dandelions. Um, you got to love the little flowers, right? And I think one of the reasons they, they cover the landscape in my backyard is because no child nor myself can resist when you walk by one just kicking it and, and watching the seeds explode and blow over the rest of the yard. You can't help but if you're a child to pick it up and, and to whack a sibling or to blow it. I think Scripture would say that our God is so sovereign that not one seed of a dandelion is blown into the wind when our God doesn't know where that seed will land. That our God is so in control of his universe that not only does he know where that seed will land, but he knows which seeds will die and be fruitless and which seeds will, will be turned into a new flower, a new plant. That is how sovereign our God is. So he's a creator God who is sovereign over history. And not only that, when you have a God this big, this high, this lifted up, Paul's third point in this sermon would be like, this God is a jealous God. Think about a God who can create this creation, a God who is so sovereign over all of history that he is involved in directing it. Do you think a God that big wants to share his worship? with a stick or a stone or a piece of metal or an ideology. No. Our God is a jealous God as it tells us throughout the scripture. And he demands our wholehearted, undivided worship. And when we divide our hearts in idolatry, Paul's next point is that our God demands repentance. That we turn from our idol worship, that we turn from those things that we are seeking for meaning and value in our life, and we turn towards God, who is the only one who can provide those things. And we need to repent for this next point, is that there is a coming judgment in verse 31. We live in a world where you don't like to talk about sin and we don't like to talk about judgment. But do you realize the good news loses its goodness without an impending judgment? I think oftentimes our, our, our gospel message loses its balance. And it does this throughout history. At one point in history, it was heavy on the judgment of God, on hell, fire, and brimstone. And I think the pendulum has swung, and we're in a new age where it's much more accepted in our culture to say the gospel is all love and grace and mercy and acceptance. It's true. The gospel is those things. It is love and mercy and grace and acceptance, and that is a good and glorious thing. But to have that be our entire message and to leave apart this part about a sovereign God who is jealous and who demands repentance from our sin because there is a coming judgment is to have an unbalanced message. We have to have both. Because Paul's final point here 
talks about the good news. Yes, he is a jealous God. Yes, he demands repentance. Yes, there is a coming judgment. But the judge is Jesus Christ our Lord who died for our sins. And when we stand before him, having repented and believed in him, he does not condemn us as guilty sinners to be separated from God. But he receives us as sons and daughters. The good news is so good because there's a lot of bad coming if we don't accept it. We may have to make sure we have a balanced gospel approach. This is what Paul said in his sermon. I think there's some of us who have the personality. He's like, man, let's preach sin. Let's preach that hellfire. Let's preach that brimstone. And, and, and some people are, are built that way. And that's why I think it's also important for us not only to focus on what Paul said, but how he said it. He did not talk about this gospel message in anger or in hate or in frustration. But we see three things of how he said it. In verse 22, when Paul spoke the gospel message, he began it and he spoke it in respect. Men of Athens, he says, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He did not begin his gospel message of repentance with insulting the crowd he was speaking to, but with respect. We can't expect to win people to Christ, to share the gospel message and have them respond if we start off with belittling and disrespect. We have to respect those we are speaking to. Not only that, but what we see Paul doing here is Paul is connecting the gospel to what was familiar with the people he was speaking to. So Paul, when he was speaking in Athens, began to speak of this altar to the, this altar to, to the unknown God. Not only that, he began to quote their literature to them. Paul was able to do this and was able to connect the gospel to where they were in their lives and to their, to their art and their culture and their literature because he was so well-versed in the gospel. And it's something that we need to do. We need to be so saturated in our lives with the gospel of Jesus Christ, with the word of God, so that when we go out there and we watch like Civil War, the other service had to help me. I forgot what, the, what it was called. But Iron Man and um, Captain America, like, fight it out. We need to be so well-versed in the gospel that we can see the gospel images going through that movie that we can see where that movie contradicts the word of God. So that when you hear a song come on the radio, that, 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 you are, that you are automatically, your mind is going to what scripture has to say about that song. So that you can therefore connect the word of God and the gospel message to the culture around you. I, I, I didn't get this as a child. And I'm, I'm slowly starting to get it now. Um, I grew up on, on classic country music. Not the country music on the radio today. That's not country. That's like hip-hop with twang. Um, <laughs> it's horrible. But the classic country music, like Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard and Conway Twitty and, and those guys, that, that's the stuff I grew up on. And uh, so working in the garage, sometimes I'll turn it on. As a child, I didn't get it. I was just listening and, and, and probably singing the wrong lyrics, but I was enjoying myself. 
But now when I turn on that music, I think, is that what that song says? I thought this was a more wholesome age. Oh, goodness. But, but we need to be so well-versed in the gospel and the word of God so that when our culture sends something our way, we are able to filter it through God's word and then engage other people who are taking in that media as well. So Paul showed respect. He connected the gospel with what was familiar. And this is the other thing that is very important. Paul did not shy away from the truth. He didn't shy away from the truth. He showed respect. He spoke in their language where they could understand. But he did not shy away from the truth in order to get a better response. He called sin, sin. He called idolatry, idolatry. And he presented a clear gospel message. So often, we are tempted to try to whitewash the gospel. So tempted, we try to make the gospel more acceptable to the culture we live in. And so we do take out the aspects of sin and judgment and repentance. Paul didn't do that, and we shouldn't either. The gospel is going to be offensive when we speak it. I think that's where we see the people's response to Paul's message. One of the responses we see is is mockery. Verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Earlier in our text, they called Paul a babbler. And what this was, this was an image in in Greek where where Paul was considered to be this, this bird in the marketplace eating scraps out of the gutter. It came to represent this term, battle, or began to represent uh, beggars who had wander the marketplace, hoping to piece together an outfit or a meal off of what was left behind. They said, Paul, your message is ridiculous. It's like you've listened to everybody else and taken bits and pieces of other philosophies and cobbled them together to make this thing called Christianity, and they mocked him for it. The other response we see in this text is a polite rejection. A polite rejection of saying, that's interesting, Paul. Maybe you can tell us more about this later. That's, that's a good philosophy, Paul, but tell us more later. And just kind of pushed them off, brushed him off, and, 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 and delayed a further conversation. We'll get that response as well. Some were curious, wanted to hear more. But look at verse 34. Verse 34 says, But some men joined him and believed. Some men joined him and believed. We can have confidence that when we share the gospel message, that it is not we who are saving people. It is not we who have the responsibility to to take somebody from being a sinner to a saint, but that is God's act. And we can go in confidence knowing that some people will respond and some people will believe. I think we need to be encouraged by verses like Romans chapter 1, verse 16, when Paul, who is rejected above any other apostle of tears, says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. 
So Grace Bible Church, as we go out to our city, as we go out into Colleen and Cove and Heights and Temple and Belton and Nolanville and wherever else we may live, Kempner, what else I'll leave out? We have to make sure that when we go out, that we are not ashamed of the gospel, but we share it out of compassion, out of love, and that we reason with people the name and actions and the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. Some will mock, some will politely disregard us, but God has also called some to believe. That's why we continue to share this good news. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that encourages us to continue to go out and to fulfill the Great Commission, to go out to make disciples of all nations. But Father, to do that, we need to trust in you more and to put aside the idols that are in our hearts. Father, help us to do that. And as we come forward for communion, may we confess our sins and our idols to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.